Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com. Amen. Why don't you guys take out your Bibles? We're going to be hanging out the next few minutes in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, we are officially kicking off our series through the book of John in two Sundays, so don't miss that on the 19th. Um, but this week and next week, we are going to be kind of pausing from that to position ourselves to have this conversation. How do we begin our year? How do we begin this decade with intention? Because beginnings matter. Uh, how many of you guys had a good New Year's Day? Good New Year's. You just had a good like holiday season. Like, man, I was pumped for this New Year. I had a great New Year's Day, um, so it started. <laughs> like, all your stories are depressing. This is the most depressing of all of them. Started this great New Year's Day. Someone gave uh, myself and some friends some tickets to the Staples Center to go watch the Lakers and the Phoenix Suns play. I know. Pretty, uh, I was pretty stoked for that. I was looking forward to it for weeks. Specifically because I was born in Phoenix, and I have always been a diehard Phoenix Suns fan, which is as sad as you can imagine. It is painful even sometimes admitting it to people, but um, it's, I, I, I just love the Phoenix Suns, grew up loving them, still love them. And so when we were offered these tickets, like, what game do you want to see? I was like, Phoenix Suns. He's like, oh, no one wants to see them. Sure. So... <laughs> New Year's Day, drove up to L.A., got these amazing seats, and I'm with some of my best friends that were watching the game, and by the end of the like, first quarter, beginning of the second quarter, the Phoenix Suns were down by 38 points, <laughs> which if you're not familiar with basketball, that doesn't happen ever. Like maybe 20 points is like a bad beat. 38 points in the first quarter, you're like, what happened? Um, I'm so I'm like crying like in my season I'm like why God like I thought this was my year, um, and and to their credit they kind of like fight back and they get within seven points in the fourth quarter and actually had like an opportunity to tie it they would have made their stinking three points anyways, um, but they obviously the game ends they they don't win. And the whole time I'm like, wow, it was a, a valiant effort to fight back. But the reality is how they started was so significant that their ability to come back was absolutely thwarted. Now, here's the good news. Your soul, our spirituality, that never happens because of Jesus, right? Even if you're the Phoenix Suns. Like, there's always opportunities to come back. But how we start matters, this is why throughout the Bible, it reveals God as a God of new beginnings. He lets people have fresh starts. He lets people have fresh starts every year, but he says he gives mercy that's new every morning. God loves new beginnings. And I think he loves new beginnings because he knows how important they are for our souls. He knows as people, we need fresh starts. We need a clean slate. And so today's sermon is gonna be called is going to be revolved around the theme. We're going to be talking about this idea of pressing onward, forgetting what's behind, of understanding what is it that lays ahead of us, not just our goals or ambitions or our resolutions, but in a biblical sense, what does Jesus have in front of us that we can move forward and press onward to what Paul describes as a prize or a goal? So, 
uh, three themes that we're going to pick up in this third chapter of Philippians. Number one, uh, a common theme throughout this letter is this idea of rejoicing or deep celebration. Um, so I don't know if that was on your New Year's resolutions, but we're going to be just, just encouraging you to rejoice this year more. Uh, second, second thing that we see as a theme of this chapter is this idea of confidence and a new source of where confidence can come from. And lastly, we see this idea of a heavenly citizenship. So we're going to be talking about these three themes that we see within this letter that Paul writes to the Philippians. So let's begin just with the first verse. And he, he starts it like this. Further, or therefore, my brothers and sisters, here it is, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. He's already said this, that it's a safeguard for you. Chapter four, what do you say again? Rejoice. And again, I'll say rejoice. You think Paul's trying to get a point across. Now, here's what's interesting about this, this command, this exhortation, this call for this, this group of people to live in a joyful, celebratory demeanor, is that if you look at the preceding verses, the last five verses before chapter three starts, you see a very different picture than you would assume someone who's writing about rejoicing. I don't know, when I think about someone writing about rejoicing, I imagine them having this disposition towards joy. They're a type seven on the Enneagram. They're a sanguine. They, they just have had good cards at them. And you're kind of, everyone who's like that re- joyful, you're just like, ah, you know, what, what is, what, I don't really believe that. We become kind of cynical about this idea of celebration or rejoicing or joy. But Paul, I think, has every right to speak to this subject. Let's just read the previous five verses here for context. He says in verse 25 of chapter 2, Still I think it's necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and co-worker and fellow soldier, your messenger and my minister to my need. Now I want you to pick up on some of the, the words Paul uses here in these verses. For he has been longing for all of you and has been distressed... Because you heard that he was ill. He was indeed so ill that he nearly died. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, so that I would not have one sorrow after another. Yeah, real happy dude, right? I am the more eager to send him, therefore in order that you may rejoice at seeing him, and that I may be less anxious. So we know that Paul's sorrowful anxious his friend almost died because of illness verse 29 welcome him them in the lord with all joy and honor such people because he came close to death for the work of christ risking his life to make up for those services that you could not give me and let's just add on top of that that paul is writing this letter from a prison cell in rome like the guy to talk about rejoicing so paul writes to this church in Philippi, and it's an interesting letter <clears throat> because all letters in the New Testament are written within certain genres of letter writing in the ancient world, similar to how when you go to college or high school, there's a format that your teachers require of you, and so if you put your name on the right side instead of the left side, you get docked points, and you're like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. Well, similarly, in the ancient culture, there's formatting within letter writing, Philippians is the only letter in the New Testament that's written within the genre of friendship. It's a literal genre called friendship letters. And so he writes with this 
this kind of robust call. You, you don't really get depressed reading Philippians ever. It's just, it makes you kind of feel good and hopeful, and it's because, largely because the formatting of it is within this friendship lettering. And as you write to them, what we have to keep in mind, even as you write this letter, life is not great. He's writing from a prison cell. There's points where he references chains around him. We know that there's guards around him. And as seemingly in the beginning, his mission had stopped. He's facing disease, the loss of loved ones. And yet he writes, which is just so profound to me, he writes to this church again and again and again with this word, rejoice. Rejoice. And this, this Greek word is fascinating because the Greek word here, is the word kairo. And kairo is it's kind of what you would assume rejoice means. It's this boisterous celebration. It's this deep-rooted joy. It's, it's calling for this. Now, kairo stems from these other Greek root words that help paint why he can tell this church, by the way, that is being persecuted, to rejoice. The Greek, Greek word kairo comes from the Greek word kara, or kara, which means joy, and the word kara comes from the word charis, which means grace. So the word, the Greek word joy, rejoice, is rooted in grace, and I think it's not just the word, but I think the actual concept of rejoicing is rooted in grace. Because if we're honest, there's really two reasons why we celebrate, isn't there? One is because you accomplished something, like something happened in your life. You worked hard for it. You got a promotion. You're, you're going to go out to Denny's like you do, and you're going to like celebrate with a grand slam or whatever your thing is. You're like, yeah, we're going big. Uh, you know, something in your life you worked hard for, you saved up money, you got that vacation. What happens? You celebrate. You rejoice. And that's good. It's part of life. Um, and there's a biblical precedent for that. This, that is not the rejoicing that Paul's talking about here. He's talking about a rejoicing that doesn't come from work it's, or achievement. He's talking about a rejoicing that comes from gift. Now, think about a couple weeks ago, if you were around children at Christmas time, or you yourself at one point were a child at Christmas time, the, the gift, that what happens immediately as they're given it, what rejoicing happens. I remember when we drove our kids to school and passed by their school, and they're like, Mom, Dad, we passed our school, and we're like, oh, we're not going to school. We're going to Disneyland, right? And there's shrieks coming from the back of the, oh, my God. And what, rejoicing because of what? They didn't do anything. They didn't work hard for that. They didn't achieve anything. What is it? It's gift. Rejoicing that comes from gift, which, by the way, means grace, charis, which results in Cairo. And so Paul writes them again and again and again, not about a celebration that comes from achievement, but a rejoicing that comes from realizing that everything is gift. Everything comes from grace because of what God has done for us. Um, just a, a story to illustrate this. I told this probably a couple years ago, but I'll tell it again. It's one of my favorites because most of you guys probably were not there. Um, was a few years back, probably three, four years ago, um, our daughters were in this thing called Awana. Is anyone familiar with Awana? Now, let, let me educate those of you who were not brought up in this <laughs> weird environment. Um, uh, 
Awana is kind of like a club that happens during the night where you go and you read Bible verses. You get like gems, literal like little plastic gems in a crown. You have a red vest that says Sparky's on it. And you have all these competitions where you learn Bible verses. By the way, if you haven't taken Awana in 20, 30, 40 years, nothing has changed. It's awesome. Same <laughs> graphics. It's great. Um, but my kids, like I did when I was a kid, loved it. Like, they looked forward to, like, everything is Thursday nights. Every week, they're like, is tonight Awana? And we're like, yeah. And so they're going and they're memorizing scripture. I guess this is, like, great. And, um, and then Jen and I get a date night. I'm like, this is, like, win-win, right? So we drop our kids off. We go, like, have some food, pick them up. They learn scripture. We're fat. We're great. You know, it's like we're feeling good. And so when we're, one night, they come home, and they bring these blocks of wood home, and they're like, hey, uh, there's a Pinewood Derby race. And we're like, cool, what do we do? Like, well, we have to make this into a car, and we bring it back and we race them. Like, sweet, like, not, not a big deal. So someone else, not me, because I shouldn't touch tools, uh, carved it into, like, a shape of a car. We got some, like, plastic wheels from, like, Michael's, and I'm like, you guys can paint them. So they painted them, and, like, they're these cute little, like, blobs of wood, you know, that kind of look like cars. So we show up to this Awana, like, Pinewood Derby race car, and it was, like, the worst dad moment of my life to that point because it was, like, the Olympics of Christian subculture. I mean, people had, like, shellacked their, like, Pinewood Derby race car, had bought, like, liquid graphite. They're spraying on the wheels. I'm like, what is this? Like, it was a thing. And we were completely unprepared, and my daughters immediately look at me like, Dad? I'm like, oh, I should have tried harder, kids. <laughs> so, and so they're kind of like nervous. I'm really nervous. And so we get up, and like there's a whole big, huge board that's built, and they like put these four cars, and they have different heats, and they, they pull the thing, and they drop them down, and you see the big old trophy sitting at the, on the table. I'm like, what in the world is this thing? Well, the first heat comes, and, and Zoe, our oldest, is like, it's like, Dad, do you think I'm going to win? I'm like, yeah, maybe. Pray. You should pray. <laughs> so four cars line up. They pull the thing. They go down. I kid you not. They go, Zoom, and then Zoe just goes, Erd. it doesn't even get flat. Like gravity couldn't even help my daughter's car. Like it's just like stopped, like mid-track, and she just bursts into tears. So embarrassed. She runs and buries her head in my chest, and I'm like, oh, Zoe, I'm like, hey, this is a valuable life lesson for you. She looks up at me. I'm like, hey, you were put on the slow track, okay? It wasn't your car, babe. I just totally lied to her. I'm like, it was just the track that you were put on. Sometimes that's life. Sometimes you can put on the slow track, and you just got to do the best with what you got. She's like, okay. And they're like... Heat number two. I was like, uh-oh, there's another heat. So they line him up in a different track, drops it, and what happens? <laughs> Burst into tears. Four heats. I'm like, just stop. Put her out of her misery. <laughs> like, we know she's not going to win. It's like, and every time she's crying more and more and more. And I'm like, just feeling like such an awful dad. And then at the end of the thing, they're giving out the trophies, which is just like so awful. Um, like for, for her, I'm like, I'm pro trophies. And, you know, I'm not like, they're like, everyone gets a trophy. I'm like, no, someone does. But it was not my daughter that night. But then they're like, and we're, here's the trophy for the best decorated. And my daughter's like, oh. and I was like, oh, no. <laughs> 
not this time, sweetheart. So sure enough, they don't call her name. You know, they call someone else who, like, worked hard on it. And whatever. Um, and so she, and she, that just, she just loses it. She's crying. She's like, Dad, can we just go home? I'm like, yeah, let's go home. And as we're literally getting our stuff to leave, uh, the girl who won first place, who has this trophy, comes up and taps her on the shoulder. And she's like, hey, you didn't hear they called your name. Like, you won. And she's like, what? And we're like, and she's like, yeah, this is yours. And she, like, grabs this trophy. It was so, like, it was so precious to her. And she's, she's like, wow. And I'm like, boys, I'm like, thank you, like, for this. And she, like, stands up. And as is happening, I hear the Holy Spirit just say to me, he's like, he says, this is what I did for you. This is the gospel. You couldn't do what you needed to do, but I did it for you. I gave it, and, and I start having a moment. I start crying, and so it's like, Dad, I'm like, I'm sorry. This is me so much. But then she sits up, and I was, I'm like, what is she doing? All of a sudden, I see her just start to strut with her trophy. <laughs> Kid you not. She literally goes up to her sister. She's like, oh, you didn't get a trophy? Better luck next year. I was like, What? How dare you? Like, she's literally walking around the room, flaunting her trophy. She didn't win. And I'm getting angry. And I feel like the Lord is he's like, hey, you do that too. And I immediately realized with that in that moment that I do this all the time. I take credit for the grace and the gift of God as something that I've earned and achieved. And this is what Paul's getting at when he, when he writes to this church. He's like, hey, I rejoice. And what we're going to see here in a minute is he's like, don't, don't for a second look at your own achievements and your own sort of earned confidence. The rejoicing I'm calling you to is rooted in grace. Everything is a gift. This is why you can rejoice always. Is if you choose to recognize this, this reality that everything is comes from the gift, the giver of good things, the far father in heaven. John Calvin says, there is not one blade of grass, there is no color in this world that is not intended to make us rejoice. That's why God gave us creation, that's why God ultimately gave us his son, is he desires for us to live as a people of, joy, of deep joy, not fleeting happiness or sensation, but a deep-rooted sense of celebration in his goodness. He then takes his concepts and he builds on it with this idea and this concept of confidence. In verse 3, he says, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. So, fascinating turn of events. Rejoice. And he, and, he, and he starts to encourage them. He says, hey, we are the true circumcision. Weird encouragement sentence, right? Don't find that on many Hallmark cards. <laughs> but Paul uses this as a tool to encourage the church. Why would he say that? Well, little backstory here. When the Jewish people were captured hundreds of years before and were transferred from different world power to different world power and currently underneath the Roman Empire, their temple was destroyed. 
had just been rebuilt. And in AD 70, right around the time this is done, it's destroyed again. And so most followers of Jesus at that time didn't belong to a religion called Christianity. That didn't exist yet. Most of them were Jewish people who were following who they believed to be the Messiah. So most of them were called followers of the way. They weren't called Christians. And if they were called Christians, it's more of a mockery term. So I want you to keep that in mind. But the, one of the ways that these Jewish people, not, not necessarily the followers of the way, but the Jewish people kept their cultural heritage is they would find these ways to have a sense of, of pride, religious and ethnic pride. And largely that was summarized as if you were circumcised. And so followers of Jesus early on were having this debate. Well, if you are a follower of Jesus, but you still want to be a true follower of Jesus, then you need to be circumcised as well. So these Greeks who started following Jesus started having this understanding, well, is that true? And Paul writes them with his sentence and says, no, no, no. Not only do you not have to be circumcised to belong to this new way of Jesus, that we are, and by we meaning those who have placed their faith in Jesus are the circumcision, which is a way of saying we are the true people of God. And, and again, a very kind of foreign concept for us, but I want you to just go to what he's saying. We're the true people of God. And he says, it's not because of a confidence you have in your own doing, your own kind of adherence to the Jewish law, your own morality, your own strict religious observance to these Jewish traditions. And he says, if anyone has confidence in that, I have more. And then he begins to start listing his pedigree, which again, some of these things are going to sound foreign to us, but just believe me when I say that he is giving the greatest religious resume for an ancient Jewish person in the Near East. When he says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. If you have a Bible, underline that. If you get one thing today, this is it. I'm going to read it again. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth or compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. And so Paul just starts going for it. He says, hey, listen, if you are being persecuted by people arguing that they're more religious than you, more holy than you, more moral than you, I have more reason to brag. And he lists his amazing pedigree. He says, listen, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Do you think they're zealous? I was a Pharisee. I was putting Christians to death because I was wrongly believing this was the most devoted thing I could do to God. And he just lists his huge things. But all of that, 
everything that I have done, which is more than anyone who's trying to persecute you, I consider it nothing. I consider it a loss compared to this one thing. And he describes it like this, knowing Jesus. That somehow in Paul's spirit, as he writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, listen, everything I could ever add up in my achievements and accomplishments, both professionally and religiously, are nothing. A matter of fact, they're garbage compared to what it means to know Jesus. So as we start a new year, not only, not only am, I, am I asking you and exhorting you through the scriptures to start it with a sense of joy and celebration, but I'm asking that you would begin to realign your value system that, that it's not like knowing Jesus, family, work. It's like knowing Jesus and everything else. It, it is the resolution. For Paul, this is, this is it. Knowing Christ is the only thing that matters to them to the point where he says, even if I'm suffering, that I might share in Christ's crucifixion, that somehow I would be able to participate in the resurrection of the dead. I mean, he's, he's trying to make this case. He says, listen, it doesn't, matter. it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter all the achievements you have. It matters about this gift. It matters about the grace of God that enables us to know Jesus. And the only thing that requires from you is faith. There was a, a time when I was growing up that I wanted to start learning how to play guitar. And so my dad had this like 1980s ovation guitar. It's like a plastic rounded back, which by the way is not a good idea, just for like good sound. Had this like rainbow strap. It was so 80s. Like, I, like it's awesome now. In the moment, it was not cool. It was a junior higher. So I remember telling my dad, I'm like, I'm going to buy an electric guitar. And he's like, ooh. And I'm like, he's like, well, I'm not buying you one. I'm like, fine, I'm going to save up my own money. So I did. I saved up 100 bucks. opened a newspaper. Remember the classified ads? Remember those things? Looked up like an electric guitar in some person's garage in El Cajon named like Tony or something like, and I showed up with my $100 cash in junior high and I bought my first like my instrument and I treasured that thing. I learned a guitar on that thing. I took guitar lessons. I led worship. I got a case for it and it was the worst instrument I've ever played. It was awful. It was so bad. It wasn't even like a squire, like Fender's knockoff, you know? It was just like, I don't know, Friars or something. It was so bad. And as I progressed, I would continue to buy my own instruments. And uh, I bought an acoustic guitar. And all of them were cheap, poorly made, awful instruments. But I loved them. I cherished them. I worked hard. And when I graduated high school, um, at my graduation party, I was pulled aside after everyone was leaving by my pastor, my youth pastor, and my dad. Okay, we want to show you something. And they, and I looked, and there was a guitar case, and I opened it up, and it was that guitar. It was this Taylor 710, completely one-of-a-kind, unique guitar, worth over $3,000, which I'd never seen in my life. And I took this guitar home, and every other instrument, which I had a few that I had bought in, started to collect dust because I had never played an instrument. But you know what was interesting? I didn't earn this. This was a gift. 
But this gift was not only precious because it was given, it was, it was precious because it possessed more value, more quality, more sound, more longevity than anything that I could ever done. And so you know what I found myself doing? I stopped playing those other instruments that used to mean so much to me that I worked so hard for. And this is, this is the grace of God that Paul's talking about. He says, listen, you've worked super hard to get this form of spirituality, but what I'm talking about is a gift of so much surpassing value, you can't even imagine it, so much so that all of these other things you've tried to achieve are garbage compared to this. And as he's he's writing this, it, it, it almost feels a little overwhelming, like, wow, cool, Paul. I still, like, want to get a promotion. I still would like to graduate from college. I still want, like, to spend my paycheck on, like, a new pair of shoes. Like, and I like Jesus, too. But, like, but here's the good news. In verse 12, Paul says this, Not that I've already obtained all this or have already ma- arrived at my goal. Isn't that such a, a nice sentence to hear in the middle of this like massive exhortation? Like, leave your accomplishments. Jesus is the only thing that matters. And you're like, it's true, but I don't know if I'm like there yet 100%. And Paul says, me neither. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. Again, it's it's such a relieving sentence. He says, but one thing I do. So if if you're here this morning and you're like, man, I get what you're saying, but this is gonna take a while, you're in good company with the Apostle Paul. But he does say things. He says, but one thing I've got, one thing I've arrived at. He says, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. So has Paul become perfect in his soul affection in Christ and not looking towards the other things that he's achieved in his life? No, no, no. He says, I'm not there yet. He says, but here's the one thing that I have got down. He says, everything in my past I've forgotten, and I'm pressing on towards the goal, which is mine in Christ Jesus. Now keep in mind, there's two things that Paul needs to forget here. Number one is his, it's his accomplishments. It's his sense of achievement, spiritually, religiously, professionally, and trade that for the incredible worth of knowing Christ. But the other thing Paul needs to forget is his own shame. Remember, Paul, after he met Jesus, realized in that moment he had spent a significant amount of his adult life trying to kill off Christians. Talk about dealing with guilt and shame. And Paul, as he writes this letter, this joyful letter, calling the people to rejoice in the gift of knowing Christ, he says, listen, I'm not, I'm not fully there yet, but one thing I've had to arrive at is I forget the past. I forget it. I forget the, the, the false sense of achievement and accomplishment in my own morality and religion, but I also forget the pain and the guilt of my own shortcomings and wickedness. And I'm pressing on towards the goal. So this sermon today is not called arrival. It's pressing onward. No one in this room has arrived yet. But what you can arrive today is you can forget the past. You can press on towards what's ahead of you in Christ Jesus. Now just for a moment, a moment of clarity. 
if you're like, well, Benji, are you saying that like working hard doesn't matter or my own personal sense of success or achievement doesn't matter? And I want to say um, that is not what this text is saying at all. As a matter of fact, in the fall, we spent laying a theology for the dignity of work, of working hard. Every single person in this room has a unique calling on their life. Some of you guys are educators. Some of you guys work in law. Some of you guys work in medicine. Some of you guys are students. Some of you guys are stay-at-home parents. Whatever the unique call that God has placed on your life in this season of your life, do it well. But make no mistake, that calling or career will never give you the ability to have the joy it's talking about here. Only Jesus can do that. So in the midst of you honoring God through working hard, being creative, being redemptive in your work, remember that in the midst of that, if you miss the relational joy that is offered through Christ Jesus, then you'll never be able to experience the kairo, the rejoicing, the celebration that comes when you realize that no matter how hard you work, no matter how much money I saved up for the electric guitars, there's a way better one. No matter how hard Zoe worked at building her car, the trophy was never hers. It was given to her. And it's in that space that actually fuels you. It was like the, the care that I used for this Taylor guitar was immensely more because I understood the value of it. So I would just encourage you, whatever you're doing, do it well. Work hard. Get the promotion. Get straight A's. Have a thriving relationship. All those things. They honor the Lord. But remember that in the midst of that, there will be temptation to think that the success within those callings is what can give you the greatest joy. And it's only Christ. It's only who Jesus is. Which leads to our last point this morning that Paul ends this chapter talking about a heavenly citizenship, which is kind of a funny term. But for them, the Philippians, it was a profoundly deep promise. Here's why. In that day and age, being a Roman citizen was everything. If you were a Roman citizen, you had legal rights. If you were not a Roman citizen, you immediately would have been charged guilty. You didn't even have to go to court. If you're a Roman citizen, you didn't pay as high of taxes. If you're a Roman citizen, you wouldn't be put on the front lines in the middle of a war. That was for the un-Roman citizens. If you're a Roman citizen, you had a certain sense of dignity and pride that would have spoken to your socioeconomic status. And the city of Philippi, because of its position geographically, was an extension of Rome. So that meant if you lived in Philippi, if you were a Philippian, you were a Roman citizen, which meant you, you lived life with a certain kind of, uh, a certain sense of pride. You were a Roman citizen if you were a Philippian. And Paul's speaking to this, but this isn't the only thing he's speaking to because in a, around AD 60, the Caesar at that time was a guy named Nero who was quite literally insane. One of the things he did is he lit Rome on fire uh, because he wanted to build himself a new palace. And as he lit things on fire, you can imagine the people were not super happy with Caesar Nero. And so being uh, as insane as he was, but also maybe quick on his feet, he decides to blame the Christians. And around that time, people just assumed Christians were Jews. 
a certain sect of Judaism. But it's just from that time they began to have a sense of like, oh, I think they're their own thing, these followers of Jesus, the followers of the way. And so Nero, not wanting to disturb their relationship with the Jews, who were much more numerous at the time and who had developed good relationship, blamed the Christians for his lighting Rome on fire. And so they kicked all of the Christians out of Rome, and they stripped all Christians of their Roman citizenship, Rome or not. So these people who used to enjoy the benefits of being Roman citizens, the, the minute they became a Christian meant that was stripped from you. Think about that. I think a lot of times the gospel that we preach is like, hey, follow Jesus and everything's better. Paul's gospel is like, follow Jesus and you're no longer a Roman citizen. You lose rights. You lose opportunities. You lose status. And it's within that nature that he starts to write to them about what we've just talked about the past few minutes of like, you can still celebrate. You can rejoice. Don't look at your achievements and don't look at your shame. Look at the gift and the grace of God and let that, and let that spill over because you can know Christ just as he knows you. And in verse 15, he continues this concept where he says, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make to, clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Again, because they're, they're taking their eyes and looking at other people. Verse 18, for as I have often told you before and I'll tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross, of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. You can imagine some of the Christians who are hearing this letter, they're like, rejoice, but look at them. Look at the benefits they're experiencing, and now look at the persecution we're undergoing. Look at, look at all of these things are, that are transpiring. And then he says, look, at their minds are set on earthly things. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. This is a massive statement of hope. You're citizens of heaven. I know, I know that being a citizen of Rome is kind of a big deal when you look at the things around you. And I know that having that stripped from you would have been really painful. But let me remind you that we don't belong to this earthly kingdom. We belong to a heavenly one. And a matter of fact, your citizenship, your identity, your sense of security all comes from a heavenly place, not an earthly one. It's eternal, not temporal. And so as we look to 2020, I would encourage you, what would it look like if you viewed the year through an eternal lens instead of a temporal one? What are your eternal goals? What do you mean by, what do you mean by that? Well, you see, the, the Bible talks about there are things that we do in this life that will not stop when we're dead that they will last into eternity, which would be a great sermon sometime to do. But let me just give you just a few examples. Number one, everything you do in love will last. Everything motivated 
by love, your relationships, your care for others, the things that you do, those things will not just disappear with your life. Secondly, when we join in with our heavenly citizenship, with the economy and the kingdom of heaven, we begin to start building things, creating things, nurturing things that, according to the scriptures, are actually bringing heaven to earth. Again, a lot of us were fed um, a theology and a doctrine of being evacuated from earth and getting to heaven. When Revelation talks about that's not really the picture that we have, we see heaven coming to earth. And so, if you're an architect and you build a building, for the glory of God, working with your coworkers, motivated by love, according to the scriptures, that has eternal value to it. Even if that's only going to last for a few hundred years. According to the scriptures, the redemptive reordering of things that we're doing has eternal significance to it now. Every day matters. Every action matters. Every relationship matters. Vance Havner, who's... Um, recently passed away, who's this really well-known preacher, says this, if you are a Christian, you are not a citizen of this world trying to get to heaven. You are a citizen of heaven making your way through this world. R.C. Sproul says, right now counts forever. And last, last quote, C.S. Lewis says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most of the present world who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. How can we look at this next year, this next decade with eternity in mind? And you, you, that doesn't mean you have to move to Africa and, and maybe you will. But how do you go to work tomorrow? How will you bring your kids to school Tomorrow, How will you engage your friend, your roommate, your spouse in such a way with eternity in mind? Three, uh, before we leave today, I just want to give you kind of three applicable just concepts for you guys just to work through and wrestle through as we get ready to enter into this new year together. Um, not just only as individuals, but as a church. Uh, number one, rejoice. Everything is a gift. Um, I know that there are some of you guys in this room, again, you're those type seven sanguines, and you're like, I already wrote that down. It's like already on my agenda. Party, have fun, laugh, yeah. Uh, some of you guys are like, those people. Uh, biblically speaking, I believe God is forming us into a community of joy that we would choose intentionally, we will be people who celebrate the goodness of God, the gift that he's brought. If you're like, well, how do I do that? How do I become someone who's intentionally rejoicing? Here's just three simple, practical things. There's more, but here's just a few to chew on. Number one, slow down. It's really hard to be someone who rejoices when you're stressed, hectic, and have no margin. Slow down. Number two, practice thankfulness. Recent psychology and neurology has proven that people who live thankfully actually change the wiring of their brain towards joy. Thirdly, celebrate. I mean, 
Find time this year to go and enjoy the goodness of God. Laugh with a friend. Enjoy a good meal. Walk in and, and observe and soak in God's beautiful creation. Take time to, I think a lot of times we can, we can assume that our spirituality is, is serious business. Is it serious? Yes, but it's seriously full of joy. And when we celebrate specifically around our brothers and sisters, the goodness of God, this honors God because this is when we become truly human and fully alive in his presence. Second application point, root your confidence in knowing Christ. Again, work hard, um, whatever unique calling is, do to the best of your ability. But root your confidence in knowing Christ. And again, you're like, well, how do I, how do, I do that? Here's, again, here's just a list of five things. There's dozens of other ones, but here's just some things to chew on. Uh, number one, practice silence and solitude. In a world where it's so busy, turn off your phone for 20 minutes or put it in another room. Sit down and listen to the Holy Spirit. Spend time in the presence of God. Read scripture. Some of you guys who have young kids running around, you know, maybe after the kids go to bed, instead of turning on Netflix, just pause for a moment. Uh, worship, right? Turn one of your commutes to work or from work into a time where you can just turn on a good worship playlist on Spotify or go find a Christian radio station or engage in some art that you maybe wouldn't do, but do it as an act of worship. Go outside on a hike. Recognize and give glory to God in his presence. Uh, memorize scripture. Read through the gospels. Uh, again, enter in with us as we do Electio Divina, which is... Again, it's, it's just it's a tool, and there's, again, many more, but these are just some that can help you root your confidence, not in your own sense of achievement, morality, religion, but doing away with all of that and saying, no, this is just about knowing Jesus. And thirdly, reimagine your priorities and passions with eternity in mind. How, how, do, you, how do you move from being the best barista um, for your company to being a barista with eternity in mind, being a barista who someone's like, man, I'm going to actually love and care for people today. I'm going to work and create beauty because I know it matters to the heart of God. I'm going to care about even the ethics of the company I work for and encourage our bosses to make sure we're getting uh, fairly sourced uh, coffee beans, whatever that looks like for you. Engage in redemptive work. Invest into deeper relationships and ultimately make love your aim. You bow your heads with me. Father, we thank you for today. Lord, thank you that someone like the Apostle Paul, who's so, um, so noble and admirable, Lord Jesus, for him to say, I'm not there yet. God, thank you that this is a space that we can all just be like, we're not there yet but I want to press on I want to forget what's behind I want to be a person of joy not because I've achieved something but because I've received a gift but I pray that you would help us in a world that wants to nail down our identity our citizenship if you will to things that are temporal 
Lord, I pray that our citizenship would be heavenly, eternal, rooted in you. Lord, we love you so much. Again, thank you for the gift of who you are. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsandiego.com.